Hi, and welcome to the Hello Live podcast, brought to you by the Hello Foundation. I'm your podcast host, Kelly Bodden, and I'm a speech-language pathologist based in Portland, Oregon. You will receive 30 minutes of free CEUs for listening to this episode in its entirety. I'll give you instructions on how to document your participation at the end of the episode. I'll also tell you how to get in touch with any questions or comments you have for us. But for now, sit back and enjoy the show. Hi, my name is Frank Bender, and for the next 30 minutes, I will be providing an overview on the process of evaluating English language learners for special education. However, before we begin, I want to clarify a few things regarding this discussion. One, I'll reference concepts that will require the listener to conduct additional follow-up research in order to gain a better understanding of the ideas expressed. Two, this is a complex discussion, but it is a doable process. And I also want to underscore that it is a process. The purpose of this podcast is to explain a process that is in accordance with federal and state statutes, current research, and best practice principles. And finally, this process can be used with any student that comes from a culturally and linguistically diverse background. So I do want to note that much of the research and professional development typically discuss Latino and Spanish-speaking students. So if you're out looking at the research, this is typically what you'll find. Now, this makes sense since approximately 53% of all ELL students in the U.S. are Latino. However, we also need a process that recognizes and provides us with strategies to address the other 48% of the ELL students that can represent over 100 different languages and cultures in our work setting. So the first point that I would like to begin with when discussing this process is that we do not want to reinvent the wheel. I'm very big on that. Many times people assume that because we are evaluating an ELL student or a student whose primary language is other than English or a student who is considered from a culturally and linguistically diverse background, we feel or people out there feel that in order to identify if a student has a communication disorder, we have to do something radically different from what we may do with an English-speaking student. I want to say that the process that we will utilize is really not that different. If we think of it more conceptually, much of what we do is typically the same, and we'll go through that. However, there are a couple of things that we would specifically do a little differently. One, we may substitute a couple of different data sources to assist with our interpretation, and we'll go into that. Two, our analysis may be different. Why is it different? Is because everything that we collect in terms of our data will now need to be filtered through a lens that addresses cultural and linguistic factors. So to begin with, any evaluation process that I start with, I use an overarching premise. When I evaluate any student, what am I really trying to do? I'm trying to identify if a student is performing or functioning in a typical or an atypical manner. When we distill this down, this is generally how we identify communication disorders for any student, whether they're English speaking or ELL. So for example, if a teacher refers a second grade student to me for a communication concern, my role will be to determine if this student's current communication skills are different from typical seven and eight year old students. 
So when they bring this student to me, I go, okay, the student's eight years old. I immediately go back to my training and I say, okay, this is what a typical seven or eight-year-old student can do, either with their speech sound development or their language abilities. Then I start looking at the data and I say, wow, can the student do this? Yes or no. Can they do this? Yes or no. And I start developing an air pattern analysis. So for an ELL student, we're essentially doing the same thing. The difference is, though, that we need to know what typical looks like for a multitude of different languages. That's where it becomes a little tricky. I have to have access to resources that give me some insight to what typical looks like for potentially 100 different languages. And not just in terms of their cultural framework, but what are some of the linguistic attributes for a student who is Vietnamese, Hmong, Somali, and of course Spanish speaking because we see many of those students. There are resources out there that I would actually suggest you look up. Uh, I think one of the best primers that I've seen out there that make it easy to digest is Dr. Celeste Roseberry McKibben's book, uh, that Working with Multicultural Students with Language Differences. She provides uh, resources in terms of understanding what are the attributes of cultural and linguistic factors for many of the students that we would see in our school setting. I typically during an evaluation process, look at three main constructs in terms of data collection. These constructs are representative of what I call student information, response to intervention, and capacity to learn. Each of these constructs represent factors with data that will allow me to develop a learning profile for the student when I'm evaluating them. So we want to go back to what we said earlier. We do not want to reinvent the wheel. So this conceptual approach of looking at these three constructs really represent the data that I would collect with most any standard evaluation. What is different, though, in this process are three questions that I always begin with when I'm evaluating an ELL student for special education. The first one is, what is the cultural background of the student? The second one is, what is their primary language? And three, how long have they been in an English-speaking school setting? These three questions are critical because, again, as I noted earlier, we will now filter all of our information through the lens of cultural and linguistic factors. And these three questions will help us in determining then how we interpret our data. The first construct that we want to consider uh, for our data collection is student information. And when we look at student information, this is the information that I would say we typically will be obtained during a pre-referral discussion and data collection process. But there may be some other information that you will collect after the evaluation process. But this is information that gives me insight to what might look typical versus atypical. So the first one is a critical piece that Dr. Alba Ortiz talks about, and that is having a strong pre-referral packet or process. Now, I've seen pre-referral processes that represent 14 pages of data. Now, that would be ideal because more information typically can provide you greater insight. But what's challenging is that many times when you have a 14-page packet for teachers to complete, it doesn't typically get done. So the key with a good pre-referral packet is that it is asking essential questions that you need answers to, and it's efficient for teachers to complete so the process can move forward and you can answer 
whether this child's developing typically or atypically. So the key piece in an intervention packet that we would want to have would be, again, what's the language and culture of the student? Because then we can identify what typical and atypical might look like. Parent report in terms of developmental history. Information on second language, uh, second language acquisition characteristics, which we'll go into very shortly. Exclusionary factors that we would ask about any student. Is there a issue with transiency, attendance, uh, not having the proper educational supports? And the key part of any pre-referral discussion would represent any interventions that the student has received and how did they respond to those interventions. The last piece of information that I typically collect or you'll have access to during the pre-referral or the evaluation process is how has the student performed on state testing, district testing, English language proficiency testing, for example, the Woodcock-Munoz is a typical one that you will see out there. Uh, and academic testing, such as maybe the Woodcock-Johnson, that maybe a previous uh, evaluation may have been done, or maybe previous communication evaluation and work samples that you may have access to. For the most part, as I noted, much of this information you will already hopefully have access to when you are confronted with the question, should this student be referred for a special education evaluation or this student is in the middle of a special education evaluation? What's great about this, if this data is collected at the outset, this all gets rolled over and can be utilized as part of your evaluation. This is where do not reinvent the wheel comes into play. Because if we have the information that we're going to talk about next in terms of second language acquisition and acculturation, we can now start using this information as part of our evaluation to determine if this child may have attributes of a potential communication disorder when we take into account second language acquisition and acculturation. When we are looking at this information and whether it is collected at the pre-referral stage or during the evaluation stage. A key piece of information in platform one or the construct of student information is the information pertaining to second, like, second language acquisition. So second language acquisition characteristics is important to understand because it's really analogous to when we start looking at what English language development looks like for our English speaking student. I want to ask the question is, once a student has been exposed to the English language, how have they developed in terms of acquiring those English language skills? There has been almost three decades of research outlining what sequential second language acquisition looks like and the five stages of acquisition and their attributes. Much of this has been based upon the seminal work of Jim Cummins and Stephen Krashen. And again, that information can be researched on your own in terms of second language acquisition characteristics. Uh, Jim Cummins's work on what they call Bix and Kelp, which I'll just briefly describe here in just a moment. Uh, Stephen Krashen's research in terms of the five stages of acquisition and what that looks like. So again, having a clear understanding of what the continuum looks like is very similar to uh, speech pathologists having to have the understanding of what normal language development looks like in English. What is critical here when we talk about second language acquisition is that we want to know if a student is progressing along the continuum in an appropriate manner. This can only be validly established 
by knowing how long a student has been exposed to formal English in a school-based setting. This goes back to our initial critical question. How long has a student been in an English-speaking school setting? This is important because if I know how long a student has been in an English-speaking school setting, I can then mark the point where I would expect them to be if they are a typical developing student with normal educational access in terms of the continuum of second language acquisition. What's important to note here also is that when we ask this question, many people think that it's based upon, well, how long have this, has the student lived in the U.S.? And we can't use that as a valid indicator of predicting second language acquisition. And the reason that is, is that in many of our communities now and our world, is that students can live in a community that's very homogeneous in terms of their linguistic and cultural uh, community and not have access to English. So what's, again, important when we talk about the acquisition of second language is that we need to know when the student has been in, uh, began in the English-speaking school setting and how long has that been. Because based upon the continuum of second language acquisition, I will then be able to predict, based upon that many years, where they should be in terms of development. When we think about the stages of development of second language acquisition, one caveat that we have to take into consideration, just like we would with any other student, is if there are other exclusionary factors that may preclude a student from progressing along the continuum in an efficient manner. Just like any other student, issues of transiency, behavior, absenteeism, not having access to uh, school support systems like Title I, ESL, etc., may preclude an ELL student from progressing along the second language acquisition continuum in the, appropriately, uh, in the appropriate time manner. So again, just something to consider when we start talking about second language acquisition. So when we talk about second language acquisition, Jim Cummins talks about two primary areas of what he calls BICS and CALP. And why it's important to understand these concepts is that if I have an understanding of how long it takes a student to develop BICS and CALP, then I can see what typical looks like. And again, it's important for me to understand typical if I'm going to identify what atypical development might look like for a student. So Cummins talks about BICS and CALP. BIC stands for Basic Interpersonal Communication Skills. CALP stands for Cognitive Academic Language Proficiency Skills. These are really general categories that have specific attributes that can be found in BICS and CALP continuum charts that if you just did a search online, you would probably find them. BICS is what is typically referred to or what I refer to as kind of playground talk. It's your social language. It is information that a student learns that is context embedded. So it's usually your basic vocabulary, your social discourse skills that an individual will develop as they're first learning to develop language skills. Cummins talks about this taking between one and three years for a student to acquire, develop, and, develop, and obtain mastery in, in terms of their big skills. So one to three years, two years being on average. A student's CALP skills are context-reduced language-based skills 
that would also include your academic skills that a student would develop. If we think about that in terms of anything that would be more um, vocabulary that is uh, more specific to academic content, more decontextualized information would be more CALP-based, reading and doing comprehension-based questions is more CALP-based, et cetera. These are more higher-level language-based skills. Cummins says that this takes between five to seven years to develop for a student and become commensurate with their peer group. Additional research suggests that it could take nine to 10 years. I would argue that all of us as human beings continue to develop our CALP skills. But that doesn't mean we can't do our job in terms of identifying whether a child has a language uh, difference versus a child who is developing in accordance to second language acquisition uh, skill set. What's important to understand is that how do I determine if a child's performing atypically? So if we use an example of a child who's been referred and they're an ELL student, and let's say they're a Somali speaking student, let's make it very unique, and they have uh, been referred for an evaluation. The first thing I do is ask, what's the language and culture of the student? Teacher and the team might say they're Somali. I'm like, great. I go do my homework now on the Somali culture to give, get some understanding in terms of what is typical for a Somali student in terms of their uh, family development, uh, having an understanding of how certain cultures might perceive disabilities, etc. This information is out there, and Dr. Roseberry McKibben's book does provide some insight to that. There's another book by Fong, is the author, uh, that has to do with individuals that come from a refugee status that actually, in terms of Somali students, has some great uh, insight to. But that would be f for another discussion. Now, going back to the example, child's been referred, they're a Somali-speaking student. My question then in would be, how long have they been in the English-speaking school setting? The teacher says they arrived in kindergarten, and now they're in the second grade. Well, that means that they've been exposed to formal English for approximately three years. So what I want to do now is get a sense of to where this student is on the second language acquisition continuum. If they were typically developing and there were no exclusionary factors that came into play and they've had appropriate access to school interventions, then based upon Cummins' research, he the student should have all of their big skills in. And if you went online and you downloaded the BICS-CALP checklist, you could then go through the skills checklist and identify if the student had all of those skills. Now, how I would know if the child was developing in a delayed manner is if they didn't have those skills. What's great about the BICS-CALP checklist, it's like looking at a communication checklist. But now it's using second language acquisition as our medium and metric to identify what is expected versus what the student is doing. So if the child has holes in their BICS-CALP checklist, I'd be able to say, wow, after three years, they should have all of their BIC skills in and they should have an initial uh, acquisition and uh, development of some early CALP skills. If the student is demonstrating that they have not, or they are not doing this and that there are holes in their big skills, I can now say like, wow, this student demonstrates that they only have 46% of their big skills in. This would be a concern for me. And this is a piece of data that will not only help us at the pre-referral stage, 
But now I can fold this over into my evaluation stage and say, this is a piece of data that I can use that's valid and reliable in terms of what we know about second language acquisition. And I can identify the communication and language attributes that the student is struggling in. I wish I could go into further detail on this, but I can't. But this is one way to consider how we use BICS and CALP to establish whether the child is typical or atypical. Another way we can look at this is that there are five stages of second language acquisition that Krashen talks about. And again, you can look this up online and there are checklists for this. But for a student that has been in an English speaking school setting for three years, they typically should be what they uh, would be characterized at around early to mid stage three of acquisition based upon five, what they call five plus stages of second language acquisition. Um, you will see sometimes that there are six stages, but it's right around what they call advanced, uh, advanced, and then um, like, like extremely advanced. But there's that's what the, the sixth stage is. Think about it in terms like think about it. I always think about it uh, in terms of like Brown's uh, morphological markers, where you have like the stages, and where you have the stages of five plus, where the MLU and uh, the all of the morphological markers just represent more advanced language. If you want to make that connection, uh, sometimes that can help. Anyway, so if the child should be at a stage, uh, early stage or middle stage three, and the data ref reflects that the student is functioning at a stage one or stage two of second language acquisition, again, this could represent that the child is performing in an atypical manner. And this is data that can provide you insight in terms of the, to determine if there is something going on. What's important to remember about second language acquisition data is that this is only one data point. The role of the evaluation and a holistic evaluation is to collect multiple data points and then to triangulate this data to identify if there's an established pattern of typical or atypical development. That's kind of the key to this entire process. You're going to have multiple data points. No single data point is going to determine whether the child has a disability or a communication disorder. The other construct that needs to be considered would be the student's response to intervention. And this would be, I always have like, I call them three platforms, student information, response to intervention, and capacity to learn. So the second construct or the second platform would be response to intervention. Why we consider this is that if we're dealing with potentially 100 different languages, we don't have standardized measures that would validly identify whether the child's performing tip in a typical or atypical manner. And some people would say, well, we have people that speak the language, and I would say that's great. If you have a Spanish-speaking student that you're evaluating, okay, you may have a valid tool that can be used in terms of a standardized measure in Spanish. But I would offer you a cautionary note. Just because it's a Spanish tool doesn't mean that it matches the Spanish dialect of the student being evaluated. So you may have to make sure that that's considered. But if I have a person that does speak the language, for example, what happens if I have a Russian speaking individual or speech pathologist that could speak with a Russian student? You have a leg up on the situation. You can communicate with the student and the parents, but you may not have a standardized measure to capture data. So this is where we might have to think in terms of another approach to collect information. 
Response to intervention gives us some insight to how a student performs with continual progress monitoring over time when interventions are provided. One part of response to intervention that's outlined within the literature and best practice is a research-based approach called dynamic assessment. Dynamic assessment is a great way to identify how children learn, retain, and transfer new information in an efficient manner. According to the research by Dr. Elizabeth Pena and Associates, and I would encourage you to look up information on dynamic assessment, uh, we can find out and identify in a very reliable manner within three to five 30-minute sessions of intervention whether a student is demonstrating what they call typical or atypical learning skills, okay? So, which is great. And what are we talking about? We're talking about working with a student just like we do when we're working with a student in language intervention. Think about your children that have language disorders. In three to five 30-minute sessions, what are you able to identify with a child with language disorder? They struggle with learning the material, retaining the material, and transferring it to the next session or to a like activity. When you continually provide accommodations and modifications to support that student, they typically reflect an atypical learning pattern. Typical learners do not need the amount of repetition and support that an atypical learner does. So keep that in mind. That's really what we're trying to capture here. Many times people say, well, where am I gonna get this time, Frank? If I'm evaluating a student, then how do I spend three to five 30 minute intervention sessions to capture this data? And I would ask you this, how much time are you spending giving a norm reference standardized test like the self for a student during my workshops that it takes between two to four hours to conduct the evaluation and do the analysis. Now, that's giving an individualized test. That's two to four hours. That's two to four hours that you've just spent working with a student on a standardized measure that wasn't normed for probably 48% of the students that you are evaluating that are culturally and linguistically diverse. That's only going to tell you really one thing. The child struggles with English. I'm guessing that prior data that you have and getting information about their Bix and CALP and, student, uh, and parent report and the student report, you already know the child struggles with English. The challenge with reporting that data is that it's not valid. Just because a child gets a 62 on the self who might be a Somali-speaking student, that doesn't mean that they are, that means that they struggle with English, but that doesn't mean that they have a disability. I'd much rather take that time and put a student in an evaluation or in a language-based group and work with them. This is one way that we can obtain more valid information in terms of how the student learns, retains, and transfers information. So when thinking about dynamic assessment, I would recommend that you go to the literature and look up dynamic assessment. Dr. Elizabeth Pena has done a great deal of work on this, but other researchers have, well, have as well. Um, Dr. Vera Gutierrez-Clellan and Dr. Elizabeth Pena have actually uh, written a few articles where they provide a dynamic assessment protocol that can assist you in uh, working with students and then capturing that data. All right, the last construct that I'd like to talk about is a student's capacity to learn. So this is where a group, uh, where I group most norm-referenced and standardized tests or potentially formative assessments that are given to students. Uh, and then how I go about interpreting the results. 
The critical piece of information here is that you need to remember all standardized tests are inherently biased in terms of the results that we obtain when evaluating culturally and linguistically diverse students. So if that's the case, then what does that mean? Does that mean that we discount all standardized test data? Well, not necessarily. One, you may be required to give an assessment based upon your school district's criteria. I will note that the federal standards do not require us to do this. Some state standards for communication disorder do say that you have to have a standardized measure. But the part that we want to take into account is that it doesn't say that Frank Bender has to administer a standardized test. My job is to do interpretation. I can take standardized measures from other sources and do my interpretation to identify if the child might be performing in an atypical manner. For example, let's say there was a Woodcock Mignot's done on a student. That's standardized data. I can report that. I can interpret that. I'm just saying, you want to think with an open mind when we conduct an evaluation process. The key is knowing how to interpret this data. It's not necessarily the tools that we're doing, uh, or the tools that we're required to use. So do we discount all standardized tests? Not necessarily. Now this is a complex discussion and you could spend a day talking about this. What I would direct you to is the work done by Dr. Sam Ortiz. Now Dr. Sam Ortiz is a psychologist that specializes in non-discriminatory evaluation. Now. To date, the work that he has done in terms of identifying how much bias exists in standardized tests is probably the best that I have found and I utilize in my own evaluations. Dr. Ortiz has developed a tool called the Cultural Language Interpretive Matrix that allows us to interpret standardized test scores for cognition, for school psychologists, academics, that could be for your resource specialists or your psychologist, and speech and language evaluation tools. That's the piece that's great for us. Now, in short, Ortiz and his colleagues have developed this matrix that provides insight to how much bias might be impacting your test results based upon both linguistic demand and cultural loading. So for example, most of our tests that we use are language-based tools, right? The self five, the castle, the PPVT, etc. Now, what he's done is that he's developed a rubric to weight these tests and their subtests depend based upon how much linguistic demand and cultural loading each one of these tests have and their subtests have. This weighted loading then tells you how much bias is impacting your standard score results. In a general sense, and this is where you would have to go and look up his information, most of our test scores that we use, if we report these scores and use the cultural language interpretive matrix developed by Dr. Sam Ortiz, you would find that most of your scores are impacted by as much as 15 to 30 standard score points. Now, at 
initially you'd say, oh, my gosh, that basically means that none of my scores really are are valid or reliable. And I would say, yes, that would be an initial reaction and probably a fair statement. However, this is also important, though, to note, because now this gives us the ability to know how much our scores are impacted. So we can describe this. We can describe the amount of error and variability that might be impacting the validity of our test. So if we're required to document standardized test results based upon a school district criteria, now we have the ability to at least note in a very professional way how much these test scores are impacted. The other piece that can be helpful, though, is that if I know that my test scores can be impacted by as much as 30 standard score points, that puts, let's say, let's say a test score now can be impacted by 30 standard score points, which now takes my conceptual mean of a score of 100 down to 70. But what happens if my student scores in uh, the standard score range of 50? I can at least say now that when I take into account the amount of bias that this test has in terms of linguistic demand and cultural loading, this student still scores significantly lower than we would expect. So again, this is a complex discussion. There's more information that you can get access to. I would direct you to Dr. Ortiz's book, The Essentials of Cross-Battery Assessment, the third edition from Wiley Publishing. What's great about this is that they have a disc that you can utilize where it puts in your scores and it provides you an analysis to assist you with interpreting your data. So when you're coming to the end of this discussion here, uh, once you have collected these three constructs of data, the key now is to triangulate your information and look for patterns that suggest that the student is developing or performing in an atypical manner and that you cannot primarily associate this delay due to acculturation, primary language transfer effects, which means like some languages, a student may uh, not use the proper syntax or morphosyntactic um, attributes uh, in their primary language as we have in English, or the issues of second language acquisition. So we're always asking the question, is there an atypical or typical profile? And if the answer is yes, the student is performing in an atypical way. Then I ask, is this due to acculturation, primary language transfer effects, or second language acquisition? And if the answer is no, we've addressed those things, and the, style, and the child is still performing in an atypical manner, then Ortiz and the rest of the literature would suggest and say that then there's more likely something else going on. The hard part of this experience is that there is no single number no discrepancy formula to determine eligibility. This is a process, and we're looking at air patterns that suggest that there's a preponderance of evidence that the student is developing either typically or atypically. And just like any special, special education evaluation, if the student is developing atypically, you want to identify how far behind are they from their similar peer group. And in this case, how far behind are they from their typical ELL or CLD peer group. Now, I know this is a lot of information, and uh, you probably want more detail. Again, this, is, this could be a two-day workshop and an ongoing discussion. However, I, want to try, I wanted to try to capture the overall picture for completing a research-based best practice approach to CLD evaluations for students being considered for special education. I want to thank you for listening to the Hello Foundation podcast on this topic. And if you have any additional questions, 
please feel free to post them or to contact me directly. Thank you. Congrats. You just earned 30 minutes of CEUs approved by the Oregon State Board of Examiners. Wasn't that easy? To document your participation, please visit www.thehellofoundationschools.com CEU. You can also find the blog post for this and all of our episodes at www.thehellofoundationschools.com. This is the best way to get in touch with our guest with your questions and comments. And if you want updates about upcoming shows and opportunities to participate, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.